As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me the one and only April Harter. She is a former medical social worker. She has provided counseling to patients and their family members to help them cope with the trauma of medical emergencies. That was in the state of Texas. She has now moved to Colorado. She's begun a private practice to serve. Now you have to define QTPOC, which I think is queer, trans, people of color. That would be correct. Thank you very much. With a history of racial trauma. After working with QTPOC, she has decided to help prevent racism in society by working with white clients as a coach using the racist signature theory, which is something that she has developed. And finally, she has opened up the Racism Recovery Center, which is a place that provides psychotherapy for the treatment of racism. And you are going to hear throughout this podcast that racism is heretofore to be referenced as a mental illness, treatable and curable, just as Ruth King said in episode 31. So welcome, welcome, April. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. This was inspired by listening to you on the Joy Revolution podcast. It was episode five of that podcast, 05. And I heard your candor and your humor even on codependency, on white saviorism, the narcissism spectrum, the perceived coddling mm -hmm. that some of your colleagues of color, let's say, are actually accusing you of coddling white folks. Mm -hmm. The fact that not all white people are actually complicit, mm -hmm. which we know, but honoring the history of trauma on both sides. And that is why we are here on a Sunday, woman, thank you to talk. Um, my first question is this, how did this become your main focus? And may I just say on behalf of white folks everywhere, thank you for helping us be better. Well, thank you for that support. Um, I have to tell you when I first started doing this work, I didn't get as much support. <laughs> I'm just after two years of doing this work, beginning to get some support. Mm. I'm often, you know, asked what the hardest part of this work is. And people assume that it's just simply being, you know, working with white people that makes it so hard for me. Oh, you're sacrificing yourself. No, I set very healthy boundaries with, with the white people I work with. What it is, is just the, the pushback, you know, so that now my work is starting to come through, which I'm so happy about. So again, thank you so much for the support. Um, what got me interested in doing this work? Um, well, and you, you might hear this on other podcasts, but it's just the truth in other interviews, which is that I really didn't intend to do this work. Actually. I can imagine. It wasn't something that I just woke up one day and said, yeah, I'm going to treat white people for racism. 
You know how sometimes you think you're going to do one thing and then you move forward in your journey of life and then it kind of <laughs> ends up evolving into something else? Well, that's basically what happened to me. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a good listener, that's the hope. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think as human beings, we all, you know, we get confident. Oh, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, this is, you know. And then you end up finding out, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And I have to kind of like start from scratch. And that, right. and in so many ways, that's what I did. And I have to say that, so how did I first start this? Well, there were, I guess the first thing, and it's interesting that you um, are a yoga instructor and there's so many yogis listening, because actually the first epiphany that I had that really sent me on this path towards doing the work that I'm doing hmm. is in Shavasana. <sighs> Corpse pose. Straight up. Because I was, I did a little intense little yoga session for about 60 minutes and sweating my butt off. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Then I just went into Shavasana and cleared my mind. And out of nowhere, in my mind's eye, and I could feel it in my heart. And it was like, these white people aren't doing it on purpose. And I was like, what? Like, this was like, what? Because before that, you know, I myself, my own racial trauma would get triggered and I would get frustrated when I first started coaching white people before I created the theory. And this was like the experimental period. And, um, I'll never forget it. And there was this settling in my heart of it was a grief experience mm. or the release. It was like, I didn't have to carry that burden on me. Like I'm now paranoid of all white people because they're going to act in a racist way to me or right. they're all complicit. I mean, at that moment I go, wow, there actually is hope for white people. And again, this is way before the theory, but I felt it in my heart. And because you see, I was trying to make sense of why, when I was initially coaching these white psychotherapists, why every time I would point out the racism that they didn't understand it. They, they had these blind spots they didn't understand. And I just thought, Oh, these white people are so frustrating. They just don't get it. They just purposely don't want to get it. And my, and that was my own racial trauma talking. And that was like the collective consciousness of many POC, especially black folks, which is that we're like white people, you know, can't be trusted. And, and I'll get to mm -hmm. that in a minute because actually for the most part, and this is something probably pretty unsettling for a lot of white people. It is still true unless a white person has worked through understanding their racism and really doing that heart centered work. POC really can't actually fully trust them to a degree in intimacy. But the point was back then was, what gave me hope was that I knew in my heart that a lot of these white people did it unintentionally. And that's why they felt so much shame, which really was a lot of self-hatred. And as a clinician, I saw that as a symptom. So when I first started coaching, I didn't know that this was going to be a therapeutic approach because the way I first approached coaching was pretty much how most you could say anti-racism educators do. You're teaching mm -hmm. critical race theory. You're talking about microaggressions. You know, you're you you know, lots of white people essentially hire us POC to point out what's racist and what's not. And then a white person goes, "Okay, I won't do this and I won't do that." 
Band-Aids. Your little Band-Aid solutions, yeah. And it really, in the end, kind of makes things worse because, well, it doesn't kind of, it does, because then it gives the false gives the false notion that if you follow etiquette, that you're going to just stop your racism. But I learned that early on. And I think because I am a psychotherapist and I do psychoanalyze and because of my background, I feel like I was able to, and because of that asana and the asana is because of the Shavasana, I was able to get that insight. And I really do believe that and I have to say, and I've never said this publicly before, I mean, the, that summer, I actually, just to even do the coaching, um, Elena, just to even do the coaching, it was because I'm now back in, in private practice and coaching. But at that time, I that summer before the fall of 2018, I completely, um, I went into a huge career identity crisis. Yeah, yeah. And I had a really spiritual experience because I very much feel very connected to my ancestors. Hmm. And I remember this moment when I was in my living room and my husband was watching television and I just sat there and, you know, sometimes you can feel really conflicted and you just start boohooing. You just start crying because you feel so terribly conflicted. Yes. I sat there in the living room and I was like, I don't know what to do. And And I go, I don't know if I should quit my private practice working with POC and work with white people in coaching. And I'm just like, I don't know what to do. And I was terrified because most psychotherapists are like, oh, you know, you just got to do private practice and that's the way. And, you know, so transitioning from at that time, private practice working with POC to then exclusively working with white people in coaching, that was a terrifying decision. But in the end, I made that decision. I remember sitting there and just feeling in tune with my ancestors. And I felt like my ancestors were telling me and the universe was telling me, you have to do this because this is why you're here. Like, this is your destiny. This is why you're here. Mm. And I was of course crying because I was resisting that. I, I wanted to resist because I did. I wanted to resist. I want to resist because working exclusively with white people is a scary thing. It was, <laughs> and I thought this is... This was so okay when you do something that's never been done. Yeah. That's scary. Okay. A lot of people, they read about inventors and things. And, oh, that they're so amazing. Let me tell you something. It's scary as hell when you're doing it all by yourself and no one's ever done it. And you don't have like a bunch of people going, yeah, we've been there, done that. We can support you. It's like, mm. it doesn't work like that. Like you have mm-hmm. support in other ways, but when you're pioneering, man, you run solo. That is like you're leading and you got to step into that frontier and get into it, into the woods. And it's like, oh my gosh. So it's a very, it was terrifying, but I took the plunge. Yep. So to your knowledge, is there anyone else doing it? Not, no, nobody's treating white people for racism. Nope. No. It's such a big deal what you're doing. There are so many words and notes that I've written down, but one of the things I want to talk about is the fa- the shame of it. And the fact that so many of us who really do want to understand have spent the last several weeks just learning about the history of this country, the U.S. I have also friends in Canada, also friends in Australia who are now learning the subtleties slash overt genocides and atrocities that have occurred. 
And this is the first time many of us are looking at it. There's a, an article in the Times today regarding the great disparity in textbooks mm-hmm. at schools, depending on what state they're being taught in. Yes. And so, so many of us now knowing that this is not, I'm Jewish, this is not at all unlike the Holocaust, it's just far more protracted. Mm-hmm. I've been to a concentration camp and I know what that felt like to be there 80 years later. Mm. So how do people go and have weddings on plantations? That's mm. a total tangent. I'm so sorry, but I no, just had no, to throw we're that fine. in there. No, it's all good. But, but most of the white people that we're, that are listening to this right now, if you're listening to this right now, you actually want to be part of this evolution. You are aware and recognizing that this is not the story that you want to perpetuate. That said, when it comes to, I have several zillion friends of color, mm-hmm. and I now feel like I have not actually been as intimate as I ever imagined I was with them until now, mm-hmm. knowing what I know. So that's a part of, I think, the work that you do. And I feel like we are ready to hear about the crux of your teaching, which is that mm-hmm. this is a form of codependency. It's yeah. a form of, on the spectrum of narcissism, mm-hmm. and it's rooted in childhood trauma, no matter what color you are. Mm-hmm. We all had some childhood trauma on the white side, if you had to pick a side. On the side of whites, in my understanding, if you were abused mentally, physically, emotionally, sexually, you have a set of traumatic experiences mm-hmm. that will actually contribute to your capacity to perpetuate racism yes. and disempowerment. And then on the side of the people of color, wow, you have a whole sequence of events that have happened, none of which I, as a white person, could ever identify with, but was watching from the sides going, what, what is that side, you know, my head askance going, why is that, why is this beautiful girl in my class not being called on? Why, she knows the answer. Why is she not being called on? When people of color go to this experience of spectrum of narcissism and childhood trauma they have a whole set of different traumas and that also feeds into the perpetuation of racism as i've seen it with the shaming and the blaming and and it just a it's it's not a forward momentum as i see but you are your work april dawn harder is forward momentum and that's why you're here speak to me about how you discovered that this was narcissism, a form of narcissism in its various degrees, and how do we get into uh, the childhood traumas that help us perpetuate this illness of racism? Okay, so so narcissism and racism, that combo is not uniquely my idea. It's been kind of floating around now for, I'd say about good 10 years or so, in and out the most the last five years. But the problem was, okay, so let me get to why fragility for a second. So Robin D'Angelo, I don't remember the year she she published this book, but so she published this book about white fragility. Mm. And I honestly couldn't, I honestly could not finish this book. So I couldn't either. I, I couldn't because there was so much, when I read a book and there's so much misinformation, I literally cannot even finish the book because then I know, okay, this is, I can't finish it. Right. And so I, but the one thing that she did state in her book, 
were about racist defense mechanisms, right? These defense mechanisms, which is true, but I had already mm-hmm. understood that when I was interacting with these white people, right? Initially, again, before I created the theory. And so I knew they were defenses and I knew that it was narcissistic. And so I knew because I knew it was narcissistic because I knew the symptoms of narcissistic, uh, of NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, um, because I'm a psychotherapist. So I already knew the symptoms. Plus, you know, the work that I did with QTPOC was feminist therapy. So I'm very familiar mm. with the dynamics of abuse and neglect and sexual assault and, and the narcissist and all that is within the feminist pedagogy. I mean, that is the foundation, right? Mm-hmm. And so I knew that, but then the problem was everybody was talking about these racist defense mechanisms, but as a psychotherapist, I was like, okay, but how are they constructed? Hmm. Because everybody's saying these things, but it's like, okay, just say the statement defense mechanism and they're racist. Okay. But like, but why, why? So that got me going into the theory because I started researching, well, is there any theory? Because as a therapist, just as you are a yoga instructor, you know, you, you check your books, you look to see, you know, all these background and all this, you know, for, to inform your practice. It was the same with me. I'm like, okay, I just honestly assumed there would be books about understanding the psychology and racism. No, none, none to understand the psychology of racism. Um, What I discovered, but I already basically knew this, is that the majority of information that had been published was from typically historians and sociologists, which is fine, but that psychology is not their specialty. They're not treating people. They're not psychoanalyzing people. They don't. So I noticed that some sociologists and many of them were lay people. So when I was reading White Fragility, I knew right away within seconds, I'm like, this is a lay person in psychology, but they've never actually treated someone. So they don't they can't really connect all the dots. So what there was this thing inside of me, like, okay, well, these white people are feeling shame and that's not helping them. And all I saw was Robin DiAngelo and many other people, including Jane Elliott and others, whether white or POC calling again, calling out the racism, but there was no understanding. No heal. Yeah. There was no like, well, where did that, you know, I'm like, well, where did this come from? Why? Okay. Okay. Fine. They're racist. Yes. We get that. Yes. Okay. So it seems like all they do is just basically help people come to pass that denial stage, but after the denial, okay. But then what for those that want to get better, then what do you do? So I didn't really see anything. Okay. And what I, and basically when it comes down to narcissism, Elena, I mean, just within the field of psychology, narcissism is actually a very under-researched topic. Yeah. It actually, and not only that, but even let's say that, let's say that you went to, I don't know, let's say you went to a therapist and struggled with narcissism and your, your insurance company won't even cover it oh. because they, because they say narcissism is so difficult to treat that they're like, well, we're not going to pay for it because there's no point. They'll never get better. And I, and I can't make this up because I used to work for United Healthcare. I used to work for United Healthcare as a social worker for that company. So I know already the deal firsthand. 
you know. Um, they're, they're an actually they're an Alec company. It turns out United Healthcare. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's just like right, and so Whoa. just within my field, narcissism is misunderstood. Most of my colleagues don't want to work with narcissists because they're so triggered by them in session. There's very little training on how to work with narcissists. Now, schema therapy is one of the types of therapy that is very good for narcissists, but right. and that's a compassionate approach. But it's like, you know, there isn't much compassion for the narcissist. It's just like this person's an evil person and they, and they have, they've done some bad things, but like, but, but back to what you're saying about covert and overt, but there's a difference between intentional versus unintentional. Mm. So when you have someone that's acting in racist ways, they're acting on average, most of the white people that are, I interact with, no matter how painful it is that they say to POC, and it is hella painful, especially mm. denial and intellectualization, which is, it usually is covert which is connected to that codependency. And I, because the original work that I did was feminist therapy, I also, of course, deeply understood codependency. I have thankfully healed myself, you know, not healed myself, but got EMDR myself to address the trauma that was underlying my own codependency. So not only am I a recovering codependent, but I also was working with codependence too. So I knew it personally and professionally like, oh, okay. Right. But okay. So here's the thing. A lot of people don't know that codependency really is a form of narcissism too, because typically when we look at narcissism, we're like, oh, you have the good one and the bad one. You have the bad one. That's a narcissist, the good one, the poor, innocent codependent. It's like, no, it's both narcissistic. Right. And when we hear the word narcissistic, it's so, ooh, you know, so charged. Oh, you know, it's really like, oh, I don't want to labeled a narcissist, you know? But the thing is, is that if we really dig down deep, what mm. is narcissism truly? Narcissism, you know, we hear about that wounded inner child. Anyone, where do you think that wound, the wounded inner child? Where, it's interesting because people will say, oh, I need to heal my wounded inner child. But where do you think that came from? Wounded inner child of your that parent. Yes, literal, <laughs> literal. And so literally there will be people walking around going, oh, so into reading books about the wounded inner child. Oh, but I've never been abused as a child. I'm like, what? Like, that's actually what that is. Oh, no. And I frequently, Elena, get comments, you know, on Instagram saying, well, is it possible to act in a racist way? But like, you grew up pretty good. And it's like, sweetie, like you're dis- dissociated. I like the sweetie. But bless your heart, you don't know that yet. Right. And I don't say that sarcastic. I'm serious. Like the I know you point are. is, is that if you're dissociated and if you know what it is to go through the process of healing, you understand that there were things about you that you cannot dig up within conscious awareness. And it will affect people in your inter- interracial and interpersonal relationships. And so we got a whole nation of people that struggle with narcissism and then with white folks, because this is connected to our, you could say a narcissistic economy with capitalism, which is that all of us in our country are affected by narcissism, right? And then for white folks, I like to say that the closer you get to the apex of the narcissistic brainwashing, Mm -hmm. which would be, for example, the white cis male, right? Yes. That's the more brainwashing. There's a reason why there's a lot of white women more interested in, in, you know, working through the racism and anti-racism and all that stuff. There's a reason. And it's because women 
are often either kicking into codependency, right? And or, and this gets into the saviorism, or it's also because women do know on average what it is to be discriminated sexually. They understand that. So there right. is a, they're not as brainwashed as the white men, but they're still brainwashed. So the further you get away from being identified as white male, the less brainwashing you get. So in other words, white privilege is like, it's a privilege in the sense of access to resources and things, but on the psychological level, the closer you are to that apex white male, the more brainwashed you are and the more normalized it is and the more difficult it is to get out of the brainwashing. That's why you're not seeing a lot of white men suddenly up in, you know, you're seeing mostly white women do it. Right. <laughs> so they do at least know what it is to be discriminated. Right. Right. And I have worked, by the way, with many Jewish Americans. And it's hard for them because in a way they experience a situation where it's similar to being mixed race because they've been both the perpetrators of racism, but also the victims yep. of racism yep. as well. So it's a very, very difficult predicament. You see what I mean when I say mixed race people, they're both the victims of racism and they hold white privilege. So it's like, right. it is a twofold thing that is very complex. It's not like you can just say it's this way or that way. So, but the, but the covert and the over, and back to what I was originally saying about coming to that epiphany by unintentional, then it broke that whole sense of, oh, not all white people are complicit. And then it gave me hope. But then, you know, to the narcissism. So I started researching all this stuff about narcissism. And like I said, there really isn't enough evidence-based research to treat a narcissist. So when that happens, Elena... The only thing that we can do as psychotherapists, we then have to become behavioral scientists. And it's interesting. Right. People don't think that they're like, April's not behavioral. <laughs> they're like, what? Like she's a therapist. No, but you have to be because when you actually do the research, um, psychotherapists, when there is no way to address something, you then become, you then have to experiment and then you have to just pioneer it. Right. It's with any, like with anything else, With anything else. It's just like anything else. Right. So so I noticed the defense mechanisms. I knew already that they were connected to narcissism. But then, Elena, the thing was, is that it was unique. Because, so in other words, there's different types of narcissism. And as I said, on the spectrum. Yep. And the way I look at the spectrum is ranging from unintentional all the way to those different shades of gray to the intentional Right. So it's a lack of insight, right? But the, unique, the uniqueness of the narcissism of the racist is that a racist is taught racist schemas. To center himself or herself in general in life. Correct. Because this is, because if I just recently did a crowdcast on the clinical criteria of, of racism on crowdcast. And when you look up NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, when you look that up, you are literally going to see sense of entitlement, feeling like, I mean, like literally see white supremacy just like written all over the place. And it shocked me that no one had really dived deeper. And I think why that is, Elena, is because in my field of my field, a lot of clinicians try to like run away from the intersection of social justice and psychology. There's more of a focus on the victim and there's much less focus on the perpetrator. But back in the day, one of the things that I learned in understanding feminist therapy is that there's a lot of research already that's been done when it comes to domestic violence and sexual assault, that the way to prevent 
this cycle of violence is actually to help the perpetrators. Like this is nothing new. And so it caused me to realize that this is sort of like battering an intervention program, like BIP, um, for those that may or may, this is kind of clinical, but it's it's a thing, battering an intervention and prevention program. This is, yes. this, it tends to be a court ordered thing that yep. oftentimes men, sometimes women, but, but often men, when they assault their spouses or partners, domestic partners, Mm-hmm. The court order, there's a court order that says you you have the option of joining a BIP program, B-I-P-P. And so I thought to myself, I need to create a program similar to that, but for white people. So good. Because I remembered all that feminist. Yeah, this is an exclusive interview because I'm telling you, I've never said this before because you're asking really good questions. And so I was like flooded with, my God, I got to create the equivalent of a BIP program for white people, but I also don't understand their psychology. So then I had to create the theory too. And the theory was essentially me reviewing dozens and dozens of white psychotherapists that I had coached um, for many, many, many hours and reviewed these defenses and some of them are the standard defense mechanisms, such as denial, intellectualization, projection. But the other ones are uniquely racist, very particular, right? So we're talking saviorism, perfectionism. People wouldn't even think perfectionism as a defense mechanism because that's not that's not in the standard literature, but it is an issue. Right. So, so I know I'm going, you don't, do you mind if I keep on going here? No, I actually want you to keep on going because I think this is the the heart of the healing of this. Yes. Starts here. Okay, cool. So, so I teach about these 42 racist signature patterns, right? But let me at least teach about the, the, the core seven. So the first one is I call them. So I go racist and then blank. This is the type of defense mechanism, right? So I really, when I created these defense mechanisms, I really kind of, the ones that are the outliers that I'm going to talk about, like saviorism, I had to like think outside of the box, right? Compared to my traditional psychological training about the defense mechanisms originated by Anna Freud, right? Mm. She expanded upon her father's work, right? So we have racist denial, and that is the most painful defense mechanism that a white person can perpetrate to a POC. Then we have racist intellectualization, Okay. This is like, well, I can't be racist because X, Y, Z, right? And ra- racist denial being that mm-hmm. that thing of, oh, well, I, I'm not a racist because I love black people. That's right. So that would be denial. So it's hard because it is possible to love someone and also abuse them. Totally. It's interesting because, you know, when we go back to Bell Hooks, you know, um, all about love, you know, she talks about how can you love someone when you also abuse them. But the truth is, as a therapist, you can actually love somebody and still be abusive. Actually, clinically, you can. Um, there are countless very successful films on this very matter that are very yeah, touching and poignant. Totally can be abusive and still love someone. So that's what there's. So why it's such a predicament for white folks is that it, it then it's a it's a contradiction and it's cognitive dissonance. So it's like, wait a minute, but I love this person. And that cognitive dissonance is I'm a good person, but then I did something bad. How do I reconcile that, right? Well, because it, it let's not go into black and white thinking. Let's get not try. It's hard not to. But there's a tendency to go into the cognitive distortion of black and white thinking when one has experienced trauma too, right? Because that we have that tendency to go into black. When we get triggered, we go into that black and white thinking, right? Good, bad. 
Yeah, it has to be good or bad. And that, you know, and that is going before I continue with these signatures. I mean, that goes back to what you were saying, Elena, as you were introducing just this segment that I'm talking about, which is about the shaming and this and that or this and that. That's because what you're seeing right now on television, on social media, YouTube, whatever, you're seeing a lot of polarization because it, it's like a black and white, <laughs> literally and figuratively, a cognitive distortion of how to see racism. So it's always like you only see it as the KKK and the white nationalists and then white people are like, but but am I really like them? And it's like, yes, you're acting in racist ways, but you are not complicit like them. If you literally go in the dictionary and look up the word complicit, it means that you intentionally planned something and did it. What, what, what white people are experiencing are when they hear POC and other anti-racism educators say every white person is complicit, it leaves them confused because they're like, wait a minute. Like I didn't intentionally do this, but it's, it is very bad. Yes. But I didn't mean it. And then it's like, mm-hmm. I want to believe them because they're, they know more than me. So then I must've done it on purpose. Am I, you know, and then it's just this whole shame spiral. Right. But anyway, that shame spiral is something that I'm seeing a lot in my community where people get really ashamed and then they go and take, you know, 10 different classes and they give yeah. money a zillion different times. And then there isn't really any healing done because they're just stuck in an overwhelm. Yes. And then people think, and my own fellow POC think that in doing that, that's paying penance and that is true reparation. And it's not because the reparations that we need in America is not only financial, it needs to be an emotional reparation too. And it has to be individual before it's collective, if I'm understanding you correctly. It does, because institutional racism, all it is, is a bunch of individuals acting in consciously and unconsciously racist ways, and they're affecting the power structure, right? Because institutional racism Mm. is that power structure, Mm -hmm. right? And it creates kind of a cultural narcissism in a way. That is 100% correct. So we have a, we have many shades, we have an Overall, America is has normalized narcissism, which is why we have Donald Trump in the White House, right? I mean, he's a sociopath. We all literally Google this, and my colleagues, clinical psychologists, they will all say, my God, the man is a sociopath, right? Sociopath. Yes, sociopath, right? So it's like when if anybody has a doubt, I mean, when you look at the when you look at the fact that Donald Trump became president, that's a representation. I mean, when you think of all the corporations and you know. It becomes this thing of corruption. Well, we're going to turn the other cheek because they have money and I could get some money. And I'm just going to ignore what I'm seeing because this person could hook me up. That is so American. That's like so American culture, like in general. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So the signatures, right? So you got the racist now, the racist intellectualization. Then we have racist saviorism. And you know what? The majority of racism that I see on social media and all over the place happening right now is this codependent racist saviorism. And so there is a lot of controversy when I say that you can't Venmo racism away. Yeah. And then people get misunderstood. They misunderstand me and they think, April, like, are you just saying that POC shouldn't get paid for their labor? I'm not saying that. No. What I'm trying to tell you is that on a, I need you to understand that, fine, let these white people pay whatever, but I need you to understand white people <laughs> that if you want to stop your racism, you can't Venmo it out. So when I see my fellow POC who are in this work and they say, I demand to get paid on Venmo, 
my thing is like, okay, I understand, but do you understand that? Okay, fine. You'll get some money and that's all fine and dandy. But do you understand that that's not going to change that white person's racism? I just need you to understand that. It's just not a sustainable solution. I think that these folks should and could be teaching, but if they were teaching more about what the healing is, what's well, the, the actual solution, that would be interesting. Well, and that's the thing is that they're not going to be able to, Elena, because they're not therapists. You see, they're not therapists. They're not healers. They're not taking it from, and they're more importantly, even if they are a healer, they're not, they haven't analyzed the perpetrator. So they haven't taken the time. So they're what I'm seeing a lot of, and you're going to see this a lot all over social media. There's a lot of assumptions about what white people are thinking. A lot of assumptions about what white people are thinking versus what they're actually thinking. And when I start speaking, it shocks white people because they're like, what are you, the racist whisperer? How do you know what I'm thinking? <laughs> how do you know my mind you're a black woman how do you know this and i'm like because i've worked with so many white people right and i create this theory i mean a theory is a good theory when you can apply it and it's been tested and you can apply it across the board right versus it would be an error if you couldn't apply it to yeah. white people right so um so like i said the saviorism right so th there's this um, there's, I'm seeing white people panicking, going into shame because we live in a capitalist society and because they think we can fix everything with money, Venmo, Venmo, Venmo. Okay. We'll just do that. Right. For the folks in Europe listening, Venmo is a cash transfer app, <laughs> just so you know. Yes. Or like PayPal or whatever. Yeah. 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 And so it's a trip because I'll see POC say, Venmo me, give me money, because I need reparations. White people, yes, yes, yes. Reparations need to happen. I need to do my part. And then I'll literally, at the same breath, I'll see them say, well, why are you acting in saviorism? So then I'm looking at like, well, because you asked them to save you. Hmm. You asked them to save you, which in the pedagogy is a symptom of PTSD is a part of trauma. It means that you are going into victim mode, but that's legit. You have been a victim of race. Absolutely. But understand that your racial trauma itself has not been healed. So then also I see POC, you're doing this work deeply wounded, Elena. Yeah. Now that really concerns me when I see POC, which are, I have yet to see one single POC doing any kind of cool anti-racism education that doesn't get triggered when they're in a space with white people. Chloe Valdery, I think, is one. Mm, one th I don't know this person, but here's what I'll tell you. The mm -hmm. white people, when white people tell me, oh, we think that, we think that, um, like you said, I don't know who this person is, but I'd be, I'd be the judge of it. Because the thing is, is that I've also seen a lot of POC do this work um, and they don't lash out at white people, but they repress the pain that they're experiencing. And they haven't healed from so mm, I'd assess that. I, I personally would assess that. I would be like, mm -hmm. so white people really to me can't be even the best judged of who to choose to go, okay, I'm walking into this situation where I'm trying to learn from this POC. Are they racially traumatized? Right. Uh, the only way you can kind of see that is when it's really obvious when you're seeing a lot of extreme defensiveness, then that's naturally a unhealthy way to attempt to set boundaries with white people, but it's really a cry for help. 
So it's very sad. So these POC are experiencing racial battle fatigue, um, which is also not good for their health. And from what I can see, a lot of them really haven't had therapy to address the racial trauma. So it means that they're getting re-traumatized in these educational spaces. And also white people are afraid to go in these educational spaces as well, because when that happens, they know that they're triggering and acting racist to the POC educator, and they also don't want to hurt them. So then it becomes this like walking on eggshells thing where white people go into a space with a POC and they're like, well, I know I'm supposed to learn this. I'm going to force myself to learn. I don't even know if this POC can hold space for my racism mm. because I'm going to act in a really racist way. And I don't know when I will. And whatever I say upsets them. And pretty much nine times out of 10 they're I mean, of course they're going to say something racist. That's why they're there. But back to the healing, that's because Elena, when it's actually, I'm going to tell you, it's unfair actually to expect any of these people to do this work like I do because they're not licensed psychotherapists. I'm actually treating them. What they're doing is teaching performative allyship. And when I mean teaching performative allyship, it means that they're teaching those rules of behavior like etiquette. Their objective is not to help people heal. Their objective is to get white people to behave. That is actually what they're doing. And so what white people on average are trying to do is they're just trying to behave. But that etiquette, etiquette though, um, is not authentic because etiquette only works when you're meeting someone for the first time and then you may not see them again or you hardly ever see them. I'd say that's when etiquette, not so bad. But what if you're actually in an intimate relationship with a POC? They could be your client. They could be your family member. They could be your one of your friends. Okay. That, that etiquette won't work. And, and what usually happens is that the white people that come to me, they've already learn the etiquette and memorized it. And then when they, when it doesn't work, cause they all have to go through the, you could say the stages of grief, uh, stages of grief where they have to learn all this anti-racism, all the anti-racism rules of etiquette. And then, then they crash and burn and then they go, wow, this doesn't work. Now we're going to work with you. Like all white people have to go through this. Like they, they, th I have, cons I have seen this consistently where this is what has to happen because white people, when they act in racist ways, they then can't trust themselves. Right. struggle trusting themselves. And then they're like, then what they do is they judge competency based on the color of one's skin or like how many Instagram followers someone, I mean, at this point, like they can't even trust themselves to make a, a um, decision about who to even get educated by. Right. They don't even test like to see if the educator has a track record of success. Um, mm. And even if they do, those testimonials, I'll tell you what, this is like a real elephant room. All my coaching clients will say this to me. They're like, April, I was afraid to say, I, I would never publicly say that this person, I, I lied publicly because I didn't want to say anything bad about this person because then I'm going to get attacked. Like these are the little secrets that are told to me in coaching. And they're like, they don't even want to say this is ineffective, right? And so that's where I'm also causing a lot of white people to feel uncomfortable is that I, I'm saying what a lot of white people actually confess later, but it, they're scared to death because they're like, we don't want, some of them go, well, I'm scared to, you know, to agree with what April's saying because then maybe I'm acting even more racist. Like, no, it, it's called either works or it doesn't work. So you know what's interesting about this, but not, in, but at the same time, really terrible is it's like saying we can't even take racism seriously enough for it to be scientific because it's all about image, of course, back to perfectionism, right? It, it's right. not even about competency. It's just about what looks good and what feels good, but it doesn't actually work. 
which is very superficial, right? And that's, if we're really genuinely trying to stop racism in society, don't we need to create evidence-based practice? Evidence-based psychotherapeutic Right. So I'm coming from the psychotherapeutic background, like evidence-based. So yes, it's not fair to actually, I will critique these people, but like the truth is, is that they're not healers. They're not psychotherapists. They're not, essentially what they're doing is that they're walking into a room full of perpetrators who have a history of mental illness, which is trauma, rooted in trauma. And they don't know how to interact with, so you got traumatized POC with traumatized white people then white people acting as perpetrators who have also had a history of trauma, childhood trauma, and they're spewing that onto POC educators and POC in general. And then POC are then getting victimized and at the same time trying to teach. It's like a bunch of traumatized kids yes, yes. just running around on a playground, victimizing and violating each other. Correct. And this is why you're seeing all the drama on Instagram for years now when it comes to anti-racism spaces this is why. And when I see the cults of these white women that go picking on other white women that they do these call-ins, they're really getting into cult-like behavior now. But why would they do that? And I don't say that to shame anyone listening, but listen to me. You know, that's a co the symptom of codependence. Because let me tell you, a really twisted thing that happens is that then these white people follow some of these influencers with however many houses, hundreds of thousands or millions of followers, whatever. And they're, you know, very famous. And then, so then they famous on Instagram, right? So then they post things on Instagram that are actually really shaming and very shaming and not really working toward a solution. And what I've learned in the work that I've done these past few years, as I observe this content from them, they know that that's going to increase likes. They know that if they post something that essentially traumatizes white people and makes them feel that it's going to cause the white person then to kick into saviorism and want to save them and now send them money. So essentially, a lot of these influencers are actually financially exploiting white people who are going into shame spirals. I don't, do you think they do that intentionally, though? Like, okay, I'm oh, aware yes. that you are going into saviorism, so I'm going to take your money. Yes, because I have literally had conversations with these people. And when I confront them, they just get pissed and essential. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I can't say that all of them do, but I would say the main ones are, you see, when I started doing this work in 2018, like, first of all, I did the same thing initially. Mm. I would copy and I would go, ooh, so I'm getting into anti-racism. Who are the, you know, like all Instagram, who are the ones that you study the ones that have the most followers and what do they post? What kind of content do they post? Oh, they post very, and I didn't understand this at the time, very shaming and damning things. Right. Okay. So then I initially started doing this. I started getting followers because that's how they right. get followers by shaming white people. And then they feel guilty and they say, we need to follow you and give you money because we're ashamed of ourselves. We now remind ourselves of how terrible we are. And we need to be, <laughs> mm. and then white people are like, we need to be reminded of how terrible we are every single day. And that's why we follow you because we, we can't be trusted. And we know we need to be reminded that we need to stay in check daily. And right there is the triggering of the childhood trauma. Yes. The dad or the mom who said you were fat, you were skinny, you were ugly, you're not yes. good enough. Yes. The perfectionism, the codependency, oh you're not good enough. So it's this really enmeshed relationship that happens between these followers and these Instagram you know, these Instagram influencers. So then the Instagram influencers become that exactly, they become the abusive parent and they don't even know it. And they're really, 
what they think is that they're espousing anti-racist. Like they think that they're doing social justice. What has really happened, and you know this on Instagram, how easily boundaries can be erased on Instagram, right? Yes. Um, it's very difficult, right? And so white people then get in enmeshed relationships with these POC. They, they, all of the unhealed trauma that they've experienced, which is results in the codependency, which is proximity to power. So back to the saviorism, like basically codependency is a form of narcissism because a narcissist really is just a child who's been wounded and they feel very disempowered. And the overt narcissist will try to get that power back by putting power over others. And the covert narcissist will try to get that power back by essentially like being near that proximity of power. Mm. And they don't feel worthy or they feel like I don't codependent is like, I don't deserve to be loved unless I act, act like this, unless I earn it. So what performative, people, performative allyship, right? So they fake it till they make it. So all these white people don't know that they're actually acting in this, this dynamic with these influencers where they're actually unconsciously treating them like the parents or caregivers who took care of them as children or other people and their children who did some type of caregiver role. And they're replaying this entire dynamic with them on Instagram and they have no idea. Um, the, these influencers then take the role of the perpetrator. So you got, you have narcissism all over the place. Um, you have enmeshment, lack of boundaries. You then have, um, of course, the cycle of abuse. If a POC, of course, has been racially abused, just like if any of us ha has been abused, we can either then stay the victim or we can become the perpetrator to protect ourselves. So this is like what I'm seeing on Instagram, right? And when I talk about this, it scares the hell out of people. People go into cognitive dissonance, both POC and whites. By the way, that's why sometimes I get a lot of negative feedback from POC because it is cognitive dissonance on their end. You have to understand a lot of these POC look up to them because they're like, yeah, get the white person. Like, get them. They need to be put in their place. I got to remember when I used to think that too, before I saw through the forest, trees through the forest. And, mm -hmm. and um, so in other words, violence begets violence. Right. And so anyway, I know it's a lot. Like I haven't even ever in an interview gone to that level of psychoanalysis before, because it is a lot to process. It's a lot to unpack, but this is the analysis that I made back in 2018. And that's, I have been literally, you could say like fighting, but more like advocating against that unhealthy and mesh relationship on Instagram. But, but white people back to the, to the third um, racist defense mechanism, which is racist saviorism, White people are very reluctant to let that kind of symbiotic enmeshed relationship go. Because it gives purpose and shape mm -hmm. to some perceived healing slash what's really a re-traumatization happening in perpetuity. Yes. And it's very painful. And then they don't believe something sometimes because they're like, well, April, why are you the only one saying? I'm like, because I'm the only one that's a therapist talk and I actually work with white people. So this is like... I, in other words, it's almost like what they want to do, and they also don't realize they're doing this, is that they're acting right. in a really racist way to me because they don't even take me. Right. So, they're, <laughs> so I already know. Goodness. I can then analyze why they're doing it. It's because they're traumatized. They also don't want to, they don't want to walk away from that enmeshed relationship, right? Because now we have- And they don't want to, and they don't want to be in trouble. And they don't want to feel like in they're trouble. in trouble. They want to be in trouble. Perfect. 
they don't want to be punished because they were punished as children. So they, they, they definitely don't want to get embarrassed and humiliated because then they're going to fall into the call outs, right? They're going to get smacked. Their whole business, for example, could go to hell because of it. And so it's like, this is like so unhealthy and unregulated. And so then it, I tell you, this is so interesting. Again, it's so interesting, but it's also so terrible. Like among us black therapists, and this is just a huge elephant in the room, but like my colleagues will know what I'm talking about. Um, we talk about this. This is something else. Black folks. So I'm be very specific. Black folks don't even take black therapists seriously. Why? Because they're like, because they've been brainwashed to think that the only astute scientists are white. Oh God. So then there is unfortunately this internalized discrimination oh going God. on. Right. So like, all of us black folks, like, you know how like we you'll see on social media, like say, oh, you know, black folks need more therapy and we're trying to do more to advocate for that. So those of us that are the black therapists, we advocate for that, but it's very hard because it's not something within black culture that overall that's very popular, but to top it off, it's something else. Not all black folks even believe that we're competent in what we're doing. So back to that. Wow. So then when black folks don't take their mental health seriously, and then they say something, well, oh, this April, what are you talking about? Da, da, da. But then when white people see this in social media, they just immediately go, well, the more, those people are more black than April, so they must be right. They don't even realize that's what they're thinking in their heads. Wow. And so they then judge everything not based on critical thinking. They suspend critical thinking because unfortunately that in and of itself is racist because it's like saying, it's like saying that people of color are not capable of science. Mm. It's like saying that we aren't even raising the standard or even expect a standard. Because mm. at this point, it's not even about solutions or standards. It's about, let's just not feel as bad. That's wow. what how low on the totem pole it is. God, this is a real under, this is a real eye-opening understanding. <laughs> how do we how do we even remotely begin to fix this? We have to make therapy cool. Yeah, we do. We have to make so, therapy cool. I mean, imagine like Elena, I can, I can prove this point further. I guarantee to you if a white person, let's say it was a white person, they said, I'm going to come up with something. Wouldn't a white person not want to follow that person if they've been proven that they can't actually solve the problem? Right. But if it's POC and they can't solve the problem, they're like, oh, we're not allowed to say that because who are we to judge? Because we don't even know how bad we are. So we just have no viewpoint now. Good grief. I have a lot of friends, dear friends who are very vocal and present on social media who have been dead silent because oh, yeah. they're not, they're not actually. And I just want to say, if you're listening to this and you're one of those folks, all you need to do is study the history of your country, go through the tears, the pain, the anger, the frustration of not having been taught the truth. Yeah. And then choose, how are you going to unearth your childhood trauma, your layers of narcissism, whether you're aware of them or not? We all have them. I have them. Yeah. Unearth those layers, set sufficient boundaries, and begin to actually open your mouth about what you're going to do about it, whether it's go to therapy or amplify someone else's voice, or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, you know, all that we need to do is learn. <laughs> well, I... That is true. I think that it's more than just learning, though. It, it The most important part as a white person is to hold space for that cognitive dissonance, which is, 
white people are conditioned to treat white people kind of decent. And even then we know that that's not hundred percent true, but they're still conditioned to treat white people better than POC. But here's something that I will kind of like confront you on with love, which is that um, this is again, another thing that I kind of break this rule. One of the rules of anti-racism is you got to use your white privilege to basically like advocate for POC. And I'm going to say that that's not true. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. Because guess what? White privilege is racism. How can racism stop racism? That's saviorism. And you know what's great is that I was actually, um, a a dear friend of mine actually called me out for that. And I was like, I swear I'm not doing that. Audrey Lord right. said that the you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. Right. So what's happening too is there are a lot of POC who don't understand all that. The patriarchy, how that all ties in, like this is it's complex. It's very the point is very complex. Mm. So, but back to the savior. So they have the saviorism, then we have racist perfectionism, which is right. mimicking. Mimicking. So this is, you're going to see a lot of saviorism in social media, a lot of perfectionism, mimicry, mimicry of, of basically following the rules. And this looks, I want the coveted title of being anti-racist. Okay. And then five would be racist projection. So racist projection um, is the fifth of seven. Racist projection is whenever a white person essentially calls in another white person. Um, that's because POC anti-racism educators teach that white people need to police other white people. And this is the thing. If a white person wants to police another white person, like they need to understand, first of all, first of all, can they actually stop their own racism legitimately? Have they healed from, from their race, from their narcissism, from their racism? Have they themselves done it? Otherwise it's hypocritical. So, so, so then you're policing other white people. Okay. But is that going to stop their racism? No, they're just going to end up getting defensive, right? And that's all that it's going to do. Uh, so projection means that when a white person's more focused, and this is like so much all over Instagram, when white people are more focused on other white people who are more appear more racist than them, and then they usually end up bypassing their own healing process to focus on that other white person. So then they don't even know or want to hold space for their own cognitive dissonance. It's very painful. It's so much easier to focus and project onto somebody else. Right. And this is what happens too. I've seen that. The sixth one is racist rejection of whiteness. Now, a very extreme example, example would be Rachel Dolezal. Rachel Dolezal was a white woman that pretended to be black. Um, and she was in Washington State and everything. And um, she, there's also a wonderful documentary, I believe, on Netflix with Rachel Dolezal. But... Um, so this is what happens. Let's say, for example, uh, I'll use New Mexico as an example, because actually a year and a half, two years ago, I actually went to New Mexico for the first time. I stayed in Santa Fe and then I drove to Albuquerque and I had a good time just kind of eyeballing Santa Fe and Albuquerque. And one of the things that I found very interesting about Santa Fe is how there's so much like there's, there's racism everywhere, but like Santa Fe in particular, and a lot of rich white folks in Santa Fe. And I just made a lot of observations and there were a lot of white people in Santa Fe who love indigenous culture, love, and they essentially reject their own white ethnicity and their background. And they don, it's like, in other words, cultural appropriation. And they kind of think if I, the way to get away from racism for my own racism is to literally distance myself from my own ethnic background. That's projection. Well, it can be, but it's just literally the rejection of whiteness. Like you literally dismiss your own whiteness 
in order to basically be safer for POC to approach you. Still a perpetuation of racism. It still is a perpetuation of racism. Because why? Because because anytime you bypass that cognitive dissonance, you're still acting in a racist way. And it's often unconscious because it's a defense mechanism. Because defense mechanisms are all unconscious. And why are they unconscious? Because it's connected to dissociation, which is connected to trauma. Okay, so for, I want to hear the eighth one, and then I want to talk about this cognitive dissonance seventh bypassing. One. I think seventh I, one. Sorry, yeah, the final one is probably like the most, in a way, kind of the most painful of all. In a way, not to POC, but it's the probably the most jarring for white people, which is racist leadership. Racist leadership is when white people such as Robin DiAngelo and Jane Elliott, they haven't worked through their, they have not healed from their racism. And yet what they're, what are they doing? They're teaching white people how to stop their racism. They are literally, bless their heart, the biggest hypocrites on the face of the earth as far as like addressing racism. So, but I want you to keep in mind that they just don't know that there's anything else. Like they really do believe that they're doing, they do, they really do think they're doing their best. Mm-hmm. And you'll even hear Robin D'Angelo say, well, you know, it's a lifetime of work and, and, you know, I still harbor racist feelings. Well, isn't that concerning that after this many years you've been doing this and it, and guess what? Like you literally, doesn't that for one second, you think like, okay, you've been doing this for however many years and then you still act in racist ways. How does a white girl avoid that pitfall? Ooh, um, that's what I'm here to do. that's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But what I will tell you is this, how do you avoid that pitfall of getting into learning about performative allyship, which is pretty much, I mean, 99.9999% of the content that's out there. It is praised and it is even Ibrahim Kendi. I mean, I'm speaking, I am kind of a heretic within this, but I do speak truth to power as a therapist. Like even everyone gives so much law, you know, praise to Ibrahim Kendi. I think Ibrahim Kendi is wonderful as far as statistics and history because he's a historian and understands sociology, but boo, like don't try to psychoanalyze white people because this is not, this is out of your scope of practice. So it's like when I couldn't finish that book either because there was so much misinformation in there about the white psyche. Like there was so much, I, I was like, and then all I saw was white people, oh, we love him, Ibrahim Kendi, and white fertility, and that's the Bible. And I'm looking at this going, this is not helping you. And when I say that, people go into a state of denial. They're like, well, wait a minute, but they're New York Times bestsellers, and they're rich, and they're famous, and everybody knows them, and they have credibility. And I'm like, I'm sorry that I'm not famous yet, but like, I am telling you that this is not going to hold weight in water, and I can prove it to you. Have you? Do you continue to stop? Have you been able to stop your racism? No? Okay, that's my point. Oh, a lifetime of work. I used to say that too. When I first started this work, I would get really defensive because it's my my own racial trauma. And the white person would say, but April, I've done what you've said and I'm still acting racist ways. And how dare you? Like in my mind, I was just like, how dare you even say that? You're white and like, you should know your place. And like, and and, it's a lifetime of work. And I just literally just copied all the rhetoric that I had heard because I thought, well, I guess that's just the way it is. But then my ethics started to kick in as a social worker. I'm like, no, there's more. I'm selling them a bill of goods. How can they pay me and I can't even help them? Like, how can I sleep well at night knowing that I'm just regurgitating everything that I've read and heard and that I'm actually not truly helping them? It was totally against my social work values and ethics. So anyway. So when we, uh, an intentionally 
uh, working toward healing mm -hmm. as a white person. Yeah. The answer is therapy. Well, first, so I want to answer your question about what can we do? Yes. This is why I created the 10 week series, because one of the things that I noticed, and we're going back to the beginning of the discussion is self-trust. That's actually the first homework assignment of my coaching group. We just, we just finished our first week. And that's the one I have on Crowdcast because you see the first thing that white people need to be able to do to avoid the pitfalls of not doing the real, the emotional work, the true emotional psychological work is to be able to understand the fact that they struggle to trust themselves, to discern who to learn from. And I don't say that. I know that sounds like, oh, April, you're just trying to get everybody to follow, you know, it's like, no, listen to me. Like I'm hear me out. Those of you listening, listen to me when I'm telling you. Like, if you can't trust yourself, then how will you ever expect a POC to trust you? Because true solidarity, because this is the real deal. And this is what white people don't realize what they really are trying to do when they try to follow these rules. White people are following all these influencers and doing, following all these rules and reading all these books and doing all these workshops, following all this etiquette because they want to be seen as trustworthy. Oh my God, of course. It's so simple. It's very simple. They want to be seen as trustworthy. And because think about it, if, if, because what do POC say? How come you're not doing activist work? How come you're not engaged in anti-racism? Why aren't you doing the, th why aren't you putting your life on the line? But you know what? It doesn't happen like that because you can't read a book that teaches you how to build intimacy and trust. No. This is basic 101. Like you cannot, that's not how you build trust. And so white people, first of all, just need to learn how they need to learn the courage to trust. So there's actually a book by Cynthia Wall. Spell her last name. C-Y-N. Oh, Wall, mm -hmm. W-A-L-L. -L. So, but her, Cynthia, uh, C-Y-N. T-H-I-A. She's a fellow clinical social worker. And she wrote a book called The Courage to Trust. So, the, so then I decided, you know what? All these white people want to coach with me, but I already am max capacity with 75 people. I was actually originally only, only going to take 50, but like people were like just, I mean, hitting on the door to like work with me. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, I'll take 24 more people. Okay, now this time it's, okay, we're up. We're, we're done, done. Um, but because there's so many white people are like, we want to do the work, April, with you, but we can't. I'm like, okay, you know what? You can get on Crowdcast. I'm going to do a 10 week series. And this is, I just finished the first week. So we still got nine more weeks to go. And the whole book, we're doing a book club series where I am guiding and, and we're interacting and it's amazing. Oh my gosh, Elena, I would love for you to be there. Gosh, Elena, like when you sign up for that, right? Cause I know you probably will. I mean, you will check out the chat box, literally 99.9% white people. I was abused by my mother. I had a narcissistic mother. I was yeah. sexually abused. I was as a child, 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 yeah. child. So, I mean, literally you were going to see in the chat box and everyone's like, thank you so much for having the courage to share. Like we didn't know. And you were just seeing all this childhood trauma just bleed into the chat box. So beautiful. And it was so cathartic. Exactly. Like all these white people were like, Oh, oh my gosh. Now they're just like, I had no idea. And see, it's one, like I said, there's a lot of assumptions about what white people feel and what they experience and what is at the true core of it all. But in the work that I've done, I've studied them. I've actually worked with them. I've, I've done the work myself. Hmm. And this is the core of it. And, yep. but 
But that's what white people need to learn how to do is to, they need to learn how to understand how their childhood trauma has affected their ability to trust themselves, to discern. And also when they then can work on trusting themselves, they can then learn how that's like the foundation to learn how to be trustworthy in general, in general, but, but to all, especially to a POC, but especially to to all. Yes. So what a lot of people don't know about my work is very holistic. People think, Oh, April, we already have a therapist, but we just want you for the racism. It's like, no, I'm a therapist, like here to help not just your racism, but like all of your relationships too. So what a lot of white people discover is that when they come across my work or they learn from me, it's like, or have therapy with me, or they do coaching with me, they find that all of their relationship, all of their interpersonal relationship, their intimacy goes up tenfold. Sure. Because they're just able to trust themselves so they can be more open and honest with anyone else. Yes, which comes back to that shame and vulnerability. I mean, like Brene teaches, I mean, I mean, she was my professor. I mean, this is another big part of it was when I first started doing this work, I thought, my God, like you can't shame people to change. Like this is not going to work. It was actually right. white Bernays work that made me go, oh, I'll never forget that. What she taught us in school, you know, you can't shame someone to change. Of course, I want to coach Brene myself too. Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> I, won't, I won't tell anybody, I promise. Anybody. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep that between us. Yeah, we'll keep that. But um, that was a joke. I was being a smart ass, but I would love to, to coach uh, Brene. But but yeah, so I mean, that's that final step, which is, like I said, the racist leadership. And then what, what's the first thing that can be done? In activism, white people can do whatever kind of activist stuff that they do. But here's the thing. If they don't do the emotional labor, it means yeah. all the activism they're doing is a, is a reaction of shame-based PTSD. All of it is performative allyship. And what everyone's going to find when you start reading the book, the Courage to Trust by Cynthia Wall is that in that first chapter, she discusses how when you're a child, you are supposed to trust your parents or your caregivers. And you, but if you find that you then learn, I, I can't really trust people and, and um, you'll kind of fake till you make it, you'll pretend trust because you don't want to set the wrong impression. Mm. So a lot of white people on Instagram and in other forms of social media and just all over the place, they will... I'm just going to say they kind of like worship some of these POC that are educators and like they pretend to trust them, but they really don't because they don't want to look bad. And so it's really, and eventually they're going to get caught that they're being performative, that they're not really. So in other words, one of the things that it does, it scares a lot of white people and leaves some POC very unsettled is that I really kind of have figured them out. And I like it. It's I love comforting, it too, I find. Let's get to it, you know, like, let's, let's just get to BS. it. Yes. Let's just get yeah. to it. And, yeah. um, but it just, it's just, it's so true. You have to understand. It's just so triggering for people. It's very hard for people. I mean, think about it, like, oh, I don't know. It's like Gal- Gal- Galilei. I mean, and that's an extreme example, but it's like, everyone thinks the world is flat. And then you, and then there's this one guy, actually, you know, the world is actually, that's not actually and people are like, oh, what a laughing stock, put them in the, you know, in the cellar, you know, and that's, that's kind of, it's really funny, but not funny. That's kind of what I'm experiencing right now. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, which I've worked through, but it's like, I wasn't the first one to come up with that. So I know some that will check Instagram and see that 
that's a whole other discussion. But uh, the, the actually the first people that really it was actually first Jewish psychiatrists who were trying to prevent another Holocaust, who first started studying Nazis that were racist, trying to psychoanalyze their racism. Wow. Yep. I mean, makes sense, right? Like we don't want another Holocaust. Clearly they're psychotic. Um, something's up, but again, that's the more overt psychoanalysis, but they were trying to prevent that. And then that kind of like died off it. Nothing ever came of it, became of it because racism is seen as a political stance instead of like a mental illness and connected to mental illness, uh, which Mm -hmm. is PTSD and the narcissism that that Mm -hmm. spectrum. And then, uh, which by the way, the DSM five doesn't even appropriately really speak truth. I mean, the DSM will always need, um, adjustments and changes and who tells them to change these things us therapists were the ones that hey that doesn't work anymore or hey you gotta add this um like many of us would like to see complex ptsd you know for example in the the dsm it's not in there not in there no uh tell tell the listener what dsm stands for oh the diagnostic manual uh basically it is the thing that us therapists use to diagnose you with like PTSD or some people in extreme, you know, in an extreme case, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, borderline personality disorder. There's so many disorders. Um, and so this is, we need a diagnosis in order to treat you because then we provide treatment planning. So Got just it. like any medical thing, you need to treat somebody, but you need to diagnose them first and then you then proceed with treatment. Right. So, um, and racism was rejected and is not in there as a mental illness is what you're saying. Yes, because Dr. Mm. Alvin Poussant and, you know, Edward Dunbar and, you know, Carl C. Bell. I mean, this has been an issue since the 1960s during the civil rights era. And it was actually all a bunch of black psychotherapists, males, by the way. Interesting, because look at all these black males and black females that are that are getting murdered, but especially, you know, poor George Floyd and, and whatnot and Ahmaud Aubrey. And these black male therapists were like, mind you, that... Dr. Poussaint, I mean, he's, he, I think he may be still a professor at Harvard, but I know at the time he was, I mean, we're not talking about like just adjunct professor. The man was tenured in Harvard. Wow. And he's saying, look, man, he's like, racism, extreme racism is psychotic behavior. Like when, like when poor Heather Heyer got murdered in 2017 at the Unite the Right rally. Right now, that's the extreme form of, 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 you know, overt racism. But you see, mm-hmm. but he also talks about that there's covert racism. Oh, there's a spectrum, right? So I'm not the first one. So first, it was really the first first was those Jewish, you know, psychiatrists who were saying we need to take a look at these Nazis, analyze their racism. That that just kind of fell by the wayside, never discussed again. Not until the 1960s during the civil rights movement, we have all these black therapists, and they are saying, "Hey, racism is a mental illness. We need to t- take a serious look at that." There's nothing about race or racism or anything in the DSM, and the APA. Um, well, at the time, it was the, now it's called the American Psychological Association. Before it was called the American Psychiatric Association. Okay. Right. Now, the APA at the time flat out told Dr. Poussaint said, well, there's too many racists and that's, we find that to be a cultural phenomenon. It can't possibly be an individual issue. Wow. So even though they admitted, well, the symptoms are there, we admit, but there's too many. So we can't put that in the DSM. Dude. That is straight up malpractice. Like that is straight up un, 
that is literally their cognitive dissonance, their own racism getting in the way of, of actually taking this seriously. So essentially, we don't even take racism seriously enough to see it as a mental illness. And there is a belief that, and I recently did an IGTV on this, there is a belief that if we say that racism is a mental illness within a spectrum from the microaggressions that are covert, very covert. I say microaggression because that's the term that many people are familiar with. So like we're talking about like from the microaggression all the way to like, you know, Dylan Roof, right? God, I was just thinking of him. I know who doesn't. And all the way Dylan Roof, we're talking like, you know, big time killings, right? Um, If you haven't seen it, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie Emmanuel, please watch. So it's like, you know, we have this whole thing. And so there is a belief. And I want to go ahead and answer this question because I already know I get it so many times. People say, well, if we call racism and a mental illness, then the perpetrator can plead insanity and get away with murder. Oh, God. People say this again and again. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that. That's called forensic psychology. Right. They don't get away with murder. There's plenty of people who are in jail who have mental illness. So there's like a misunderstanding in general, Elena, about mental illness. And so again, what I'm trying to say is that I then get a lot of, like I said, a lot of racism and a lot of, I am constantly just like Dr. Poussaint, even though I'm very skilled and very agile and this is what I do and I'm a scientist, what I say is not taken seriously because I'm like, I'm not like famous and number one and number two, uh, it's because I'm black. I mean, and I know that for a fact. Poussaint knew the same thing. He knew the same thing. We went through the same thing. If it was a white person saying this, and he did say this in a video, once the white people kind of started exploring this, then people took it seriously. But black person says it, it's like, well, she's not really credible. Who is she? Do other black people back her? If they don't, she's not credible. <laughs> All they care about is the color of someone's skin. They don't want to look at right. science. Again, critical thinking is just thrown out the window. And that in and of itself is a reflection of their racism. We're going to suspend. We don't even have to expect POC to be scientific because that's not what we're concerned about. Right? So deep. It's as above, so below. It's so deep. Absolutely. I literally said that the other day on a live and I was discussing as above, so below. It's the same concept. The, 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 the as above would be like the institutional racism and the below would be the, the personal racism. So it's all connected, but it does start with the individual and that spreads to the institutional. And so another question I often get um, with dissent is, you know, I, I mean, I could literally answer any question that people ask me because I've already, you know, they often ask me, well, if you say that you're dismissing institutional racism because there's this thing that's like a chicken, like a like a the chicken of the egg question of what came first, you know? Is it individual racism that came first or is it the institutional? Um, it's the individual that started it first and then it spread into the, like, who do you think creates the, in, the laws, the policies, individuals? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's basic. And for some reason, people like, when I say that and they're like, oh, now they get it. But it's like, it, it's, that's how far we, Elena, we have a long way to go to learn about the, the, as I'm sure you've heard in this. And then like, um, we have a long way to go in understanding the psychology of racism and many that are also listening. If you will find that, oh, here's another one that I always get. I can't help it. I just can't help it. I constantly get asked about my grandmother's hands. I mean, I am constantly asked about this. They think that 
my grandmother's hands is similar to the work that I do. People will say, April, but have you read my grandmother's hands? And just like what you do. And I'm like, no, it isn't like what I do. And I couldn't finish that book either. Tell me more. I couldn't finish that book because within the first like couple of chapters, I started seeing the same mistake that I made at the beginning that I just told you. And it was basically that all white people are complicit. So then I knew at that moment as a clinician that this person hadn't worked with white people. They had not worked with them to, to address their racism and on a serious psychological level, I could tell. That was an assumption. Okay. That was an assumption. And I just go, oh my gosh, so this person is now going to predicate. But I could tell uh, in working through their book that, um, just skimming through, that they definitely had a lot of experience working with POC and racial drama, just not working with the trauma of the perpetrator. And that's what people have to understand is that in order to end racism in the world, like we need to do two things. We need to heal the victims and we need to, as in, it's not the victim's fault, but just for the the justice aspect also, healing justice. Right. Uh, we the the I think that all POC who have been the victims of racism, like they really need to be able to heal from the, you know, complex PTSD that they experience because of racism. Right. Right. But more importantly, even if they get the healing, and this is really, really extra why I'm doing this work, even if they get the healing, they're going to step right out into the street and get re-victimized again by white people. So I was like, what is the point if we can't heal the environment? And that's why I do what I do, because I am addressing the psychology of the perpetrator, because otherwise POC are just going to step right into another landmine again and again and again. And that's what perpetuates their pain and suffering. So, and white people themselves emotionally are immature. That's why I love it when white people say, it's very interesting to me. They'll say, I've been a therapy five years and I never knew that I had this degree of childhood issue. And I said, because racism makes it to where you can go to a therapist and address a lot of things, but it still isn't addressed. And it's like a part of an intrinsic part of you that hasn't been addressed. It's not just a social justice issue. It is, but it's also deeply psychological. And so um, I'm heralding a cultural change, Elena, and it's going to take time. Yeah. I th- but I think I'm starting to understand the whole idea of that most whites are complicit in white body supremacy. That that whole idea goes out the window. Correct. Because what they are now, what I can tell you is that they're all brainwashed. Sure. They're all brain, but they're not all complicit. And the only way to work our way out of that, Mm -hmm. I'm just recalling my grandmother's hands and how he uses the example of his wife seeing the the employee at the Walmart checking only the black people who left the store to check their receipts and not the white people as the first example. Um, If if we are to start to heal this, Mm -hmm. I think there are two ways there's one way, which is what I said before, part one, just learn the history, learn the story, because if you don't have that, you won't feel the urgency to address your own trauma. Mm-hmm. But then two is get to a, get to a therapist. Mm-hmm. And also understand too that it's important to get to a therapist, but an unfortunate thing is that if I've also been asked this question, well, can I just go to a therapist and address my racism? And 
I will definitely not be the one to sit here and tell you don't go to a therapist. But the problem is, is that if you go to a therapist and they haven't learned what I've taught. So it's sort of like saying you're going to go to EMDR, but the person's never learned EMDR training or isn't certified. So then if you just go to a therapist to get healing with your childhood trauma, if here's the crucial part. If the therapist cannot, doesn't have, hasn't been taught by me, this theory and this method, if they, if they can't, because the, the magic happens when you connect the learned racism with the childhood trauma. If you can't do that, you're not going to get it. And that's it. why eventually I got to create, you know, training books for therapists and things like that. Because now once I do do that, then these therapists will be able to do it because then they'll have the resources and the training and the know-how and they'll get certified and then they can do exactly what I do. But at the same time, those, those white therapists actually a requirement of this, of training them later will be that they will have to be coached by me directly because yeah, that I get. they will be competent in doing any of this work. Otherwise, what are they doing? Kicking in right into racist leadership, right? They just want to bypass that. It's like, no, you need to do your own emotional labor first. And then when I know that you've done what you need to do, then I will train you. And it's the same way with POC too. There's a lot of POC that say, well, I want to learn from you and let's help these white people. I'm like, well, but you need to get your racial trauma healing first. Because you're, that's the individual work. Because you need to do your healing because you are going to act. So in other words, you're going to act in counter-transference in your session. You're going to get very triggered by this white person. So they need to do all that preparation just to even learn from me. It's that complex. It isn't like we want quick solutions. It's not going to happen like that. So I always teach people on Instagram, my coaching clients, it's, it's, not a, it's a process, not a race. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everyone wants to race this because everyone's scared and upset listen to me think we're going to be able to, to dismantle racism in america with a book or with 10 steps or a few classes or a few sessions of therapy i tell you what got another thing coming because this is mm -hmm. some really deep intergenerational trauma on both sides and we got to go deep and we, now that commitment has to happen. But again, going back to that first step, which is discernment and self-trust and learning to be a trustworthy person, that's yeah. true solidarity. And that's essentially what white people really actually want is to be, they want to be allies, but that's they can't right. be allies unless they can be trusted. So for the POC listening, no then I know this is probably going to break your heart, but you know it's the truth is that white people really can't be fully trusted until they've worked through this stuff. And can trust themselves. And can't trust themselves. Which mm. just triggers more shame, a whole shame spiral. So it's like, yeah. I, it's going to take time. I always say that white people need to go through a grief process first to, to come to the realization that anti-racism will not address their personal psychological issues. Right. That's what's happening. That white folks need to go through those stages of change, that it's a right. special type of, you know, psychological focus on the perpetrator. They, they, they have to go through that first and then they have to go through the stages of change when to get to the point of action. But the first, so the two first steps is going through that process of sadly crashing and burning and coming to the realization that, you're not a bad white person because all the stuff that you've done hasn't helped you coming to that realization that you're not even more of a racist just because you paid all these people 
and you're not, you're not getting better. Mm -hmm. In other words, you've done all this stuff and it doesn't work. It doesn't make you more or less of a racist. You, you struggle with racism. You just haven't gotten the help you need. And then two, being able to discern by learning how to trust yourself. So then you can ultimately become a trustworthy person to all human beings, including POC. And you can be a true ally because that is actually what POC want. POC want whites to be trustworthy, but we cannot be trustworthy human beings unless we do the emotional labor. So there you go. Yeah. If, well, first of all, you called me out. I'm totally going to work with you. How do I work with you? I'm, I'm excited. Honestly, There's, I've been looking for a new therapist for a long time. And now that I've moved, I don't have anything or anyone. So I'm a blank slate again. Well, here's the thing. I mean, and I want a lot of people to know this because I've, I literally get so many requests for people to have therapy with me, but I can mm -hmm. only treat people that are in Colorado and in Texas, but mostly I really want to try to keep it to Colorado. So I wouldn't be able to give you therapy because I don't have a license in New Mexico. However, Dang. For, for those, I know, but for those who, but here's why I provide coaching and here's also why I'm doing this training. So the way that the coaching works, so this is for all the white people who aren't living in Colorado, right? Which are most of you. Um, that's why I have the coaching because what coaching does, guess what the goal of coaching is? Coaching is to get, is to peel back those narcissistic layers of defense hmm. and to beautifully prepare you to work with any therapist that is doing an evidence-based practice. Got it. Because I'm doing all the unpacking layer stuff with you in coaching mm -hmm. so that all that's left after coaching is trauma that needs to be healed. And I can tell you that it doesn't matter if they're white. Like I get a lot of white people, oh, if they're white and they act in racist ways, can they help? Yes, they can. Because you've already gone through the process with me and coaching. And then in the end, the little trauma nugget is what you're going to get healed with. And in my coaching, at the end of coaching, we, I literally work, I will be working with the clients um, at the end of the year. And I will be helping them identify which evidence-based treatment for PTSD, because it is specifically PTSD, that they will be using. So for example, a lot of time people struggle with intellectualization. And that's why I love EMDR and somatic experiencing, because those are evidence-based practices that are, will get you out of your head and into your body. Yoga, hmm, yoga therapy. You know, we're talking about things that'll help you address that trauma head on, but it must be evidence-based. So um, EMDR is evidence-based. Um, there are several that are evidence-based, you know, CPT, um, cognitive processing therapy, many, many others, somatic experiencing, uh, prolonged exposure therapy. The best type, the actual best of the best for trauma is PTSD in particular is exposure therapy. This has been proven again and again. So the two for exposure would be EMDR and prolonged exposure therapy, as well as cognitive processing therapy. Okay. CPT. That CPT is actually used with veterans, with combat veterans. The VA developed it. It works really, really well. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that's what we do. So I would get on my waiting list for coaching. And in the meantime, like I said, Please join me for the join me for um, developing self trust. It's on Crowdcast. That would be Crowdcast.io/slash/racism/recovery/center, and we have already done the first week. And there is a there are beautiful exercises every single week, and everyone gets together like we did this past week, and we talk about things, we share things, you know, they share things, and I 
you can't beat it. $50 for 10 weeks. And you're, this is the beta of this. It's super afford, ridiculously affordable. I wanted to make ridiculously it ridiculously affordable. Ridic- I wanted to make it, well, come on, think about it. I, I wanted to make it ridiculously afford, affordable because like, I don't want any white person to have an excuse. Well, I can't afford this. It's like, no, like, please, like you need this, like get in it, do it. You know, like 50 bucks is a lot for some people. And it's like, I need you to do this because it'll help you. So you got to be really courageous and bold just to even get into this type of way of looking at things. And yes, many people do feel guilty. They're like, I'm betraying the influencer that I follow and betraying them. But again, that's codependency, that's saviorism. You're not, you're not here. You need to be doing this for the right reasons as in stopping your racism, not by kicking into codependency and going, I'm here to support that black person. No, I even have my own followers, you know, they get distracted and they go, we love April and we're going to, and they can't help themselves. They go right into saviorism. We're following her and we're going to support her, use our white privilege to support her. And I'm like, sweetie, but you need to learn how to stop your racism. I'm here to help you. Like I'm a clinician. I'm here to help. Like you need to help yourself, you know, and they, it's hard for them to conceive that I'm not this black person that can't be strong enough to help myself. Right. Um, and so, yes. So that is, um, we're doing I'm a lot excited. of shadow work, Elena. It's a lot of shadow work. It's all shadow work, dude. Mm-hmm. All of it. And it's, you know, I feel like um, I'm really glad that I've exposed myself to all the imagery and the visuals as well as all the written word, all the James and Baldwin and all just so many different things. Toni Morrison, we could have a whole nother conversation about one of her pieces in Source of Self-Regard about land grabs and how when you were speaking about how this all started with an individual, it all started with like land grab in the end, which is all narcissism. All of it. Capitalism, colonization, exploitation. To me, I just look at it through the lens of it as a psychotherapist. Like, oh, it's all narcissism. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Treat the narcissism. All of it. And the cycle of violence, all cycles of violence. <laughs> Yeah. Last, last question, I promise. Mm-hmm. When you were speaking earlier about the fact that it's very hard to codify a treatment for narcissism, I once had a conversation with a good friend who's a psychotherapist, and she was saying how, she was referencing borderline, actually, which is a mm-hmm. version of narcissism. Yeah. And she was saying how that person has to be willing to see themselves and come in for treatment like three to five times a week to yeah. catch all the iterations of what's happening. Is that true? That is true. So for example, with borderline personality disorder, you got to get uh, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy tends to be the most, like the best evidence-based treatment for borderline personality disorder. And, but here where I want to talk about the borderline, right? So like, for example, you, many of you may or may not know about Centoya Brown. I do not. So Centoya Brown was a uh, black woman who I believe it was, she was 16 years old. Um, she actually was put in prison at the age of 16, because she killed a man who her mother, basically, she was um, essentially selling her daughter for sex. And her daughter, Centoya Brown, was afraid of this man named Cutthroat. Or actually, Cutthroat's, um, that was the, like, the pimp or whatever. And so Cutthroat had, I guess, someone else that she was supposed to go to that day. And so she essentially killed this guy because she could tell he was moving in a way where 
She slightly resists him in the sexual act and he was getting ready to lunge and kill her. So then she turned around, killed him and ran away. She was terrified. She was only 16 years old and she was basically sentenced a lifelong sentence. What? Yes. And she was 16. Self-defense. And we're talking a black person here and it was self-defense and she's black. And oh. so she, she just year was got that? out. She, I can't remember the year, but she just got out last year. Wow. And that was because there were a lot of famous people. I think even Rihanna and like a lot of famous people. And there was a lot of pressure to get Santoya Brown out of jail because she had a lifelong sentence to stay in prison because of the murder of this guy. She was just doing self-defense. And of course that's sexist, sexism, you know, she's getting punished for protecting herself. I mean, she was just a child. She was only 16 years old, sentenced as an adult. And uh, clearly she was being trafficked by her mother. Um, wow. Oh yeah. You know, this is really terrible. The patriarchy, right? Really, really bad. And um, all, all narcissism. So this is what happens when we normalize narcissism, right? These narcissists don't get treatment. What, so then what do you, everybody with narcissism, everybody wants to say, well, this is what we're going to do. We are just going to throw them in jail. Okay, that's fine. Throw them in jail. But then what? If they get out again, they're going to perpetrate again. See, we need to start treating those. So when you talk about narcissism, borderline personality disorder, that's where I get into the stages of change. So the real question is, have they gone, what stage of change are they in? Are they in the pre-contemplative phase where they don't know that they don't know, which is most, most, a lot of white people don't know that they don't know. Right. That's the when thing. When you admitted it, you were like, oh, wow. Like, like I didn't know that I didn't know. Like white people in general, like there's just an assumption from white people, but also POC too, that think that I, again, that they don't like everyone's so well-read. They don't think that I could possibly stump them on something. Right. And it's like, oh no, sweetie, I will stump you. Not because I take pleasure in that, but because I'm just trying to help. Right. And it's just, I want to help you get out of that. Like you said, what out of that bind or stuck in something like, I want to help you get out of that because once you, because when it comes to all this work, first you're brainwashed by white supremacy, then you're brainwashed in the field of anti-racism, which is performative allyship. Then I got to help you get brainwashed out of that performative allyship. And that's what even in my coaching program, really the first 90 days is about. The first 90 days really kind of is the objective is to deprogram you from the brainwashing of performative allyship. So it's like a box within a box. It's really like, it's not sinister. It's just unknown and un... Performative allyship was taught based from a position of racial trauma. If you create a pedagogy off of off of trauma, you are emotionally compromised and you're not objective in what you're doing to help the perpetrator. You can't be objective. Right. And, and social media certainly doesn't help. Not at all. And so it spreads all the misinformation and, um, but yes, I mean, it is hard to treat a narcissist, but it's true. Um, but again, it's more hard to treat the overt. So someone with borderline personality disorder, um, they tend to be more on the overt side, but then again, what helps is love. See, a borderline, someone who struggle with borderline personality disorder, when you look into the etymology of borderline personality disorder, guess what? Most of them have been, guess, guess what? Sexually abused. Abused. Molested as children. Mold, like Santoya Brown was molested as a child. Lots of people who struggle with borderline personality disorder, they were molested as children. And sometimes they remember the molestation and sometimes they don't. Hence why I love EMDR because it just breaks up all that unconscious stuff and it comes to the surface and then you can yeah. 
finally say goodbye. You can hold space for that pain and then say goodbye and move on with your life through those three steps of, you know, trauma recovery. You go on that third step. And so racism recovery ultimately is all about, this is what I teach. I don't teach anti-racism. I'm a psychotherapist that teaches racism recovery. So racism recovery means as a white person, you have a history of trauma. You've been taught racism, which is narcissism. So it's two diagnoses, PTSD and narcissism. But I do not diagnose the person with NPD in my practice. And I'm going to tell you why. Because NPD is grandiose overt and that I don't work with overt racists. And it's not that because they can't be treated. It's because they're not ready in the stage of change. I work with the covert racist who struggles with codependency because they on average usually are kind of ready for change, especially if they've gone through the stage where they go, oh, this anti-racism is really not stop. It's not helping me. See, because what happens is and why you're like, oh, April, you got me. You know why that is? I'm going to tell you why I'm going to give you the, the little gold nugget today. And you're going to see this among lots of white people. You're going to see this. I promise you. It's because when you, when you perfect performative allyship, it'll actually enable your denial. Mm. They need emotional, deeper emotional help. Yep. And get, and, but, th- but you're all open to it. Like, you know, as long as I hear it, let's go. That's not how a lot of people really get. Their cognitive dissonance is so strong that then they just immediately reject it. Like when I say, like I said, my grandmother's hands were like, Oh, April, like maybe you're being mean. You haven't even finished the book. Like, but the moment that I saw, there are beautiful points in that book. I, I'm serious. I scam, I skim through and I go, okay, beautiful. There's actually a lot of trauma informed stuff in here, a lot of trauma informed, but what wasn't trauma informed in that book was about the mind of the perpetrator. See, that's the difference. It was very trauma-informed about the It was slightly trauma-informed about the mind of the perpetrator. Very, very trauma-informed about the mind of the victim of racism. Mm-hmm. Not quite trauma-informed about the mind of the perpetrator. Because if we're not talking about shame and shame spirals and NPD, and if we're not, if we're not talking about narcissism, trauma, and shame in this in a book, then we're not talking about the mind of the perpetrator of racism. We're not even talking about it. I could tell when I read it that it was like, and what a lot of people do when they try to understand the psychology of racism is that they kind of just, and I know because I used to do it, you research a bunch of stuff of what people have said, but you haven't actually treated the white person. You haven't actually gone through the process of analyzing them. So there's information that is research that's been assumed, and then there's research that's actually applied, and that's evidence-based. So what I focus on is evidence-based, not not, you could have 10 books that say beautiful things and it makes sense, but can it work? It needs to be tested. That's why I'm a, it needs to be tested. Does he work primarily with people of color, Mr. Menekin? I don't know for a fact, but just on what I skimmed through, I think he said that at the beginning. He's a therapist. Cause see, I know he's a therapist too, a trauma therapist. And from what I could tell, just in skimming through, mind you, I just skimmed through. Mm-hmm. I think that he works with POC. But I think he, from what I could see, he's done a lot of, if I remember correctly, just at the beginning of the book, he was talking about how much work he's done with POC, helping them process racial trauma. But yeah. And it's so different, the perpetrator, the trauma of the, because that's called perpetrator trauma. So this is like, that's an actual word. Everyone can Google that later, perpetrator trauma. There is such a thing as perpetrator trauma. So I work with the perpetrators of racism. So 
that's the thing. As a white person, you need to understand, if you want to understand your psychology, you have to understand, I have perpetrated, and now I need to work with someone that works with the perpetrators of narcissism, the perpetrators of racism. And if you're not doing that, then you're going to be not, if you're just working with someone who's only treated POC, but hasn't actually treated white people and hasn't really understood that if they don't say at a minimum perpetrator trauma, then they're not actually studying and testing what works and what doesn't work. And I honestly don't know how this, the only thing I could think of is that the reason, like I said, the reason why this has gone as long as it has is because there's always been more of a focus on racial trauma and not the actual perpetrators because people don't want to work with the perpetrators, but I happen to be very good at it. And that's exactly what I do. Got it. Well, I, for one, am super thankful because I wasn't finding any answers outside of you. I do think you would love Chloe Valdery. She's, she was raised in a, in an environment of black empowerment. So she's very much about, um, both sides both rooting in compassion, both listening, conversing, like real productive, both modern and ancient teachings, real productive work, which I appreciated. But the two of you together in my body and understanding really make a a full experience and a full you know, understanding. So I'm looking forward to working more with you. Send me that. You're going to send me that information. I'll be the best judge of that again. <laughs> I will. That's just no, I totally like, will. I hear that, yeah. but I've had so many white people try to tell me who I, I think I'd work best with. And then I get, I mean, there's a part of me that goes, Oh, cool. Let me check it out. I'm all excited. And then I'm, Oh, I'm disappointed. <laughs> so I, I hope not, but we'll see. I hate to be such a skeptic, but you know, I am a scientist. I, 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 I do get a little skeptical. Uh, I will see. I will tell you though, who I, who I do look for. Um, my mm. favorite people that I like to learn from, um, are like, for example, you know, narcissist specialist, Dr. Romney, you know, there's a great, uh, YouTube cycle, vital mind psychology on YouTube. He is a, a narcissist specialist in Sydney, Australia. I can't remember his name. Uh, uh I love Gabor Mate. He understands sure. generate. I mean, sure. I love Gabor Mate. I mean, mm-hmm. they're the ones who understand narcissism and connected to those who understand that narcissism is a child wounding and how they connect it through the macro and the micro, mm-hmm. especially. So if anyone wants to send me information, you're like, oh, this is really cool. Don't send me information necessarily about critical race theory because I, I already know all about that stuff. I, my, not that I've read it all, my goodness, but I already understand that. What I'm looking for is I'm looking to connect with people who are psychotherapists, who have actually worked with perpetrators of racism, or if they haven't, which they probably haven't, like I said, is they are narcissist specialists. Now that's what I'm interested mm. in. So yeah, I get um, that. It has to be psychologically based. Yeah. Well, I think the narcissist specialists will be the best people to buffet and round yes. out what it is that you're presenting to the world at yes. large. Yeah, I get that. Well, I could go on with you all day, but I just need to say thank you, thank you so much from so many of us who are going to find. Uh, a lot of momentum, healing, uh, understanding what to do next in this. And I really appreciate you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. And we'll talk again. All right.
Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity. The conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.